Hello, and welcome to your most obedient and humble servant. This is a women's history podcast where we feature 18th and early 19th century women's letters that don't get as much attention as we think they should. I'm your host, Katherine Garrett. This is week four of my multi-part series on Martha Washington's in-laws. So, everyone, we did it. We finally made it to Martha Washington's actual father-in-law. This is John Custis the fourth. He's probably the person who I'm most guilty of taking over party conversations and trying to get people to understand what he's like. John Custis the fourth is pretty well known in Colonial Williamsburg in Williamsburg, Virginia. He was an incredibly wealthy man with a lot of property, but he's probably most well known for his tombstone. You can actually still see his tombstone. It's hard to read. Uh, I'm going to read you the section of his will where he requests what is eventually put on the tombstone. He writes, Under this marble tomb lies the body of the Honorable John Custis Esquire of the city of Williamsburg, aged 71 years and yet lived but seven years, which was the space of time he kept a bachelor's house at Arlington on the eastern shore of Virginia. And then it says in his will, This inscription put on this stone by his own positive orders. Uh, He then gave very specific burial instructions, including that he wanted his real dead body and not a sham coffin to be taken to be buried with his father and grandfather. And then he says, If my son should ungrateful or obstinately refuse or neglect to comply with what relates to my burial in every particular, then I bar and cut him off from any part of my estate, either real or personal, and only give him one shilling sterling. It's just good that, like, in his will, he calls his son ungrateful and obstinate. (laughs) So he's pretty much saying that even though he died at 71, and in his will he just puts a blank, but we know he died at 71, he was only truly alive for the eight years before he got married, when he lived as a single man, as a bachelor. So it is an insult to his wife to be put on his actual tombstone for everyone to see forever. And it's also insulting to both of his children. So he's basically forcing his son to pay money to inscribe an insult to himself on a tombstone. Otherwise, he's only going to get one shilling. That tells you quite a bit about John Custis. He was very wealthy. He was eccentric. He was just famously stingy with this huge amount of wealth that he did have and also loved gardening. So we're going to get into a little bit of all of that. So who was John Custis? He was born in 1678 in Northampton County, Virginia. And he again, he's the fourth John Custis. His family's been in Virginia for a long time. He also was educated to England, like William Byrd and Daniel Park. But unlike William Byrd and Daniel Park, it doesn't seem like he really tried to stick around. He studied the tobacco trade. He didn't dally in all this other stuff, politics or poetry or whatever. He studied the tobacco trade, and then he came back to Virginia to grow tobacco. After his father died, he inherited about 550 acres of land in Northampton County, and a three-story brick house that had belonged to his grandfather that was called Arlington. You may recognize the name Arlington. (laughs) It's not the exact same house as the house that Robert E. Lee eventually lived in. What happened was Robert E. Lee, when he got married, he married Martha Washington's great-granddaughter, Mary, who was the daughter of George Washington Park Custis, 
who had named his Custis estate family home Arlington after this former property. I just love history. (laughs) So now Arlington carries all this meaning, but it goes back to cranky old John Custis (laughs) living in a three-story brick house on the eastern shore of Virginia as a bachelor. He inherits 550 acres of property. He ends up acquiring 3,250 more acres. That's not all that he ends up getting, but that's just on his own. He is massively expanding on this property. He also becomes a member of the House of Burgesses. He becomes very politically active. He makes a name for himself. In 1706, he married Frances Park in a double wedding with William Byrd II. It is not a happy marriage. Just like Byrd's, we have actual written documentation that this was not a happy marriage. For one thing, his tombstone. The document that I'm going to read is not actually a letter. This is a legal document a marriage agreement between John and Francis Custis that was saved in Virginia County records. So it seems as though their marriage had reached such a negative boiling point that they had to actually go see like a justice of the peace and write up an agreement of how they will behave to each other in order to make this livable for either of them. Before I read this agreement, though, I would like to point out that John Custis while he seems like a very irascible person, did love gardening. He kept up a correspondence with a pretty well-known London gardener named Peter Collinson. I am not a gardener, but if you are one of these people who's very interested, you might recognize that name. And John Custis turned his own city garden in Williamsburg into one of the best, most diverse, famous, pretty gardens in Virginia. There's a quote that I particularly like in one of his letters. He says, I am a great admirer of all the tribe's striped, gilded, and variegated plants, and especially trees. I am told those things are out of fashion, but I do not mind that. I always make my fancy my fashion. So he makes his fancy his fashion, but doesn't have a great relationship with his wife. So (laughs) here is the original draft of an agreement on file in Northampton County, Virginia. Here's the document. And the date for this is 1714. Articles of Agreement Betwixt Mr. John Custis and His Wife Whereas some differences and quarrels have arisen betwixt Mr. John Custis of York County and Francis, his wife, concerning some money, plate, and other things taken from him by the said Francis, and a more plentiful maintenance for her. Now to the end and all animosities and unkindness may cease, and a perfect love and friendship may be renewed betwixt them, they have mutually agreed upon the following articles this blank day of June, Anno Domi, 1714. First. First it is agreed that the said Francis shall return to the said John all the money, plate, and other things whatsoever that she hath taken from him, or removed out of the house upon oath, and be obliged never to take away by herself, or any other, anything of value from him again, or run him in debt without his consent, nor sell, give away, or dispose of anything of value out of the family without his consent, upon the condition that the plate and damask linen shall not be given or disposed of by the aforesaid John from the said during her life, 
And the said John doth covent, said plate and linen to be delivered by the said Francis to the said John shall be given to the children of the said John by the said Francis immediately after her decease. Second, that Francis shall henceforth forbear to call him, the said John, any vile names, or give him any ill language. Neither shall he give her any, but to live lovingly together, and to behave themselves to each other as a good husband and good wife ought to do. And that she shall not intermeddle with his affairs, but that all business belonging to the husband's management shall be solely transacted by him. Neither shall he intermeddle in her domestic affairs, but that all business properly belonging to the management of the wife shall be solely transacted by her. Third, that the said John shall pay all the debts he hath already contracted out of the debts now due to the estate, and the money he hath received, if there will be sufficient to pay them, and that he shall enter into bond to Philip Ludwell in the sum of one thousand pounds, that from henceforward he shall keep true and perfect accounts of all the profits and disbursements of his whole estate in any part of Virginia that he is now possessed of, and also of all the estate he shall at any time hereafter, by her means, be possessed of in any part of the world, and shall produce the same amounts yearly if it be required upon oath, and that after all debts hereafter necessarily accruing for buying clothes, tools, and all the necessary for the servants and plantations, paying levies and quitrants, and making necessary repairs of his whole estate, and also all other necessary charges accruing for the use and benefit of the estate which is to descend to the child of the said Francis, are deducted, and paid he shall freely and without grudging allow one full moiety, or half of the clear produce of his whole estate as aforesaid annually to the said Francis for clothing herself and the children, with a reasonable proportion thereof, and the remainder to be laid out in the education of the children, and for furnishing and providing all things that are necessary for housekeeping, that are to be brought from England, and physic, so long as the said Francis shall live peace quietly with him and that he shall allow for the maintenance and family one bushel of wheat for every week, and a sufficient quantity of Indian corn and as much flesh of all kinds as the stocks of cattle, sheep, and hogs of his whole estate will afford, without impairing them if so much shall be necessary, and sufficient quantity of cider and brandy if so much be made on the plantation, provided that nothing herein contained shall be construed to debar the said John of the free command and use of anything that shall be provided for housekeeping, so as he doth not sell any of it without her consent. Provided also that the condition of his bond be that if the said Francis do exceed the allowance herein expressed in these articles, run him in debt, or break any of them, the bond to be void and the allowance to cease. Fourth, that the said John shall allow the said Francis to keep in the house and do the necessary work in and about the same servants she now hath, visit Jenny, Queen, Pompey, and blank, or such others in their stead, and also Billy Boy, or Little Roger, and Anthony, or such another in his stead to tend the garden, go of errands, or with the coach, catch horses, and do all the other necessary works about the house, and if any of them die, the said John shall put others in their stead. Fifth, that the said John shall allow the said Francis fifteen pounds of wool and fifteen pounds of fine-dressed flax, or fifteen pounds of wool in lieu thereof, every year to spin for any use in the family she shall think fit. Sixth, that the said Francis shall have free liberty to give away twenty yards of Virginia cloth every year to charitable uses, if so much remain after the servants are clothed. That part is 
italicized or underlined. Seventh, that the said Francis shall have free liberty to keep a white servant, if she shall think fit, out of the above allowance, so as the said servant be also subject to the said John. Eighth, and for as much as one half of the clear produce of the tobacco being to be taken on the sale of it, and the clothing and other necessaries to be bought in England, and that it will generally be at least twelve months before an account of sales can be had from thence, and an invoice sent thither, therefore for the supplying of the present wants of the said Francis, the children and house in manner, and for the use aforesaid, the said John shall allow to the said Francis fifty pounds in money, if there shall be so much left remaining of the debts now due to the estate and money now on hand, after all the debts already contracted by him or her shall be paid as aforesaid. Ninth, that the said Francis shall render a true account under oath to the said John, if he shall require it, how the said fifty pounds and also the clear profits yearly are expended and laid out. I do not remember Mr. Custis mentioned any sum for the bond. Mrs. Custis named one thousand pounds, but I do not know what he said to it. Okay, so again, we've got a little bit of that 18th century language in there, but you kind of get the gist. I mean, this is like, once again, in a time period where divorce was quite difficult, this is a type of legal agreement that would prevent marital distress. The part where they do talk about that neither of them can call each other any vile names is the part that's probably most often quoted. You can just see this couple just bickering at each other, right? And it's documented in a legal document that they were calling each other vile names. And it starts with Francis being the one calling him vile names. What appears to have started this fight is that Francis has stolen all of the silver plate and is insisting that it go to her children and that her husband can't sell it or give it away. And the arrangement is, okay, you give the plate silver back because plate silver is money back then. It is both a family heirloom, something that you could use, but it's also money. Like it's, th that is silver. That is like wealth and property that you would want to pass on to your children. And so Frances is trying to make sure that this is something that she can keep control of and pass on to her kids. This document lays a pretty clear line about gender roles that She's not allowed to intermeddle with his affairs of selling tobacco. He'll do all that business. But he has to allow her to do her domestic business. And I think this is interesting because John Custis has been trained in the tobacco trade, which basically Virginia is a colony to England. They're under the mercantile system. They can't just sell the tobacco any way they want. They have to sell it to a merchant in England. And then the merchants sell the tobacco anywhere in the world. And then whatever money they get for that, they send back to the planter, taking off a hefty amount of taxes and fees and things like that. So that's how all of this is still making England richer. And you could send off your tobacco and not know how much money you're going to get from it. It would be sold by the merchants for however much they ended up getting, and you were stuck with whatever they sold it for, which is something that caused a lot of fights. <laughs> And so John Custis would sell his tobacco every year to England and then have to wait for almost a full year to get anything back. And if they wanted to buy goods from England or goods from anywhere in the world, because this is heavy imperial times, they could put that order in also with the merchants in England. So you'd say, hey, here's all this tobacco. Send me back furniture, 
cloth, dresses, shoes, buckles, whatever. And you would wait for like a full year before you got that back. But another interesting thing that could happen is you could send your tobacco and your order for stuff. And then the tobacco doesn't sell for enough to pay for all of the stuff you're ordering. And so then you could go into debt. You could also be spending money based off of how much money you think your tobacco is going to sell for, then not get that much money back and then go into debt. So this is there's a lot of ways to go very deep in debt as a Virginia tobacco planter. Barred from this, as the woman managing the household, who's really not allowed to take part in any of the business side of it, you just want your stuff. You want your clothes. You want the goods that you're ordering from England. And you're married to this man, in, in Francis's case, John Custis, who has thousands of acres of property. You get sort of used to a certain type of life that you'll keep ordering and ordering more things. You, you don't see the, the financial side of how, much, how deeply in debt that people are getting. So I think that something along these lines has happened. And that plate, silver, is like cash money. <laughs> that they are a family that's been dealing a lot in credit in the abstract, but silver is cash money. And John wants it, and Francis wants it, and they're fighting it out. But they're basically laying out, here is an allowance that she is allowed to live within that she shouldn't exceed. It doesn't seem like she's demanding money for really fancy things, She's saying necessary repairs. A lot depends on, is this John Custis saying, okay, here are the things you're allowed to spend money on. Stop spending too much money. Or is this Francis saying, you're not giving me any money to even do the basic work that I need to do to manage this house. I can't tell from this document what the situation is. But this is definitely a financial disagreement that has caused a lot of this discord. The fourth section where they talk about John allowing Francis to keep some slaves. They say servants, but that always means slaves at this time period. Jenny, Queen, Pompey, and someone else, Billy Boy or Little Roger and Anthony. So those are the uh, enslaved house servants. The fact that it has to be written out that she can have enslaved people to work in the house for her, that seems a little unusual. Maybe John had not been permitting her to have a staff inside the house, which would technically be the white woman is sort of in charge of the enslaved staff who work in the house. That's well within her realm, which allows a white slaveholder to do a lot of damage to the people over whom she has complete control. But from this situation, it looks like there was some sort of dispute over that. There's money for wool and flax for clothes. And then he says, Francis shall have free liberty to give away 20 yards of Virginia cloth every year to charitable uses, if so much remains after the servants are clothed. So feeding and clothing enslaved people was part of the job of the slaveholder. Like that goes into it. And you'll see at most slave plantations, like housing's horrible, clothing's terrible. Sometimes people are wearing wooden shoes because they're trying to maximize the profit they can get. So they've, they've bought these people, but they don't really want to feed or clothe or take care of them. That was one of those things that if there was kind of a honorable guide to what it was like to be a quote-unquote good slaveholder at this time, it was that you kept your slaves well-clothed and fed. And that doesn't seem to be happening here. 
And this isn't the only time that the issue of clothing servants comes up in documents related to John Custis. Later, when Daniel Park Custis is managing land on his own, John Custis finds out that he has not been clothing his slaves in a way that John Custis considers to be correct, and he almost disinherits Daniel. So another thing to add to sort of the complicated John Custis the fourth story is that John Custis is one of those people who had children with an enslaved woman. Her name was Alice. He refers to her in paperwork as a Negro wench Alice. But with a woman named Alice, he has a son who he names after himself, John Custis, and he frees his son. And he actually leaves his son property, this mixed-race son, which was not unheard of. It was not common. But at this time period, early-ish, mid-1700s, it wasn't completely unheard of at all. Um, I've seen a lot of different ways historians look at this. Some historians take it as like a further insult to his white son that he had a child with an enslaved woman and then he names that son after himself while his son that he had with his wife is named after the grandfather that he hates. You could also make the argument that he just really loved his child and decided to acknowledge him, which is not unheard of either. So he's a complicated person. So John Custis does at least appear to have some interest in making sure that the people he enslaves are well-clothed and well-fed, even though in just about every other aspect of his life, he is incredibly stingy with his money. So that's interesting. Finally, the last point in the list is that Frances will have to write out an account of what she spends to make sure that they're not overspending and figuring out all the debts and everything like that. So I just think this is an interesting document. It uh, tells a little story of a marriage at a certain point in time. This is after Daniel Park's death. So part of what is causing this financial strife is that John Custis had married Francis Custis expecting to get a lot of money out of it. And in fact, he got saddled with debts. And it seems as though he may have taken out some of the frustration of that on his wife by not allowing her to spend as much money as she felt she needed to manage the household to the extent that she actually stole silver to make sure that she would have something to give her children. Not a great situation. There are a lot of anecdotes about other moments in this famously miserable marriage, and I'm going to share one that I have not been able to back up for fact, but it's a good anecdote, so I'm going to share it. And this is a quote directly from Patricia Brady's very good biography of Martha Washington. While driving together in a gig and arguing furiously, John turned the team towards the shore of Chesapeake Bay and drove out into the water. Frances demanded to know where they were going, and her angry husband replied, To hell, madam. She is said to have responded, Drive on, sir. So Frances Custis ends up dying in 1715, less than a year after this marriage agreement was written. So how long people were actually keeping these financial documents or whether he had even got paid for the tobacco he sold before that point, who knows? Um, she was only 28 years old. She left behind a son and a daughter. Her son is Daniel Park Custis, and her daughter is Frances Park Custis. Next time. On Martha Washington's in-laws, we're going to talk about Daniel Park Custis's multiple attempts to marry and John Custis's constant and repeated squashings of those attempts. The plate silver is going to come up again. And finally, Martha Dandridge, young, 
pretty Martha Dandridge is going to enter into this complicated family history and put her little mark in it. So thank you very much for listening. Um, I will leave references to things for further reading in the show notes. I am, as ever, your most obedient and humble servant.